G'day there and welcome to the rewrap for Monday. All the best bits from the Mike Hosking breakfast on News Talk ZB in a sillier package. I am Glenn ZB and this morning, um, is anybody watching Spark Sport? Uh, is anybody listening to the Maori Party? Yes, the Maori, you, you oh, come on, you remember. Um, and uh, will there ever be a second harbour crossing? But before any of this, uh, the Black Ferns are champions of the world and everybody loved it. Now the fact Saturday was the highlight of Wayne Smith's coaching career tells you something. It's not like Wayne hasn't been around a while and done a bunch of cool stuff. I do worry for the side, given Smith and Henry are off to retirement now, and that's a lot of brilliance leaving the building, don't you think? And you cannot deny that what they did transformed the team. The performance in the Northern Hemisphere and the performance through this World Cup have been your classic example of what coaching and strategy can achieve. The thing I enjoyed most of all about it was the joy that the women played with. There is a lesson here for everybody. You don't have to be tense and inward looking. The world doesn't have to sit on your shoulders. The pressure doesn't have to get to you. You can, in fact, be, as they have shown, and Wayne Smith told us several times on the program, mentally free. When you are mentally free, all things are possible. You can truly express yourself. And if you are doing that, and you happen to be blessed with the appropriate talent, the combination of the two is unstoppable. The lesson is applicable in all walks and forms of life, not just the sports field. In fact, it looked like it was a lesson the Brits hadn't quite learned. They were the favourites, and by some margin, that last line-out, that was theirs. The more they ran would have won them the game, and yet, when it counted, they didn't cope. They weren't mentally free. The fact all this was played at home made it what it was, I think. It's not like we haven't won this before, for goodness sake, but we are in an age of promoting and recognising women's sport, and we're doing it at our place. So all the ingredients seem to be there. The sport has a ways to go. Of course, the variation in talent in that tournament is far too great still. But if you're going to play host, it behooves you to come out victorious. And if you can arrange it by beating the previously best side in the world in a thriller, that's what makes sport magic. Um, Yeah, as I've already said in one podcast today, uh, the more women we can get involved with everything and the the more men we can take out of things, I think that's... It's better for everyone, isn't it? Um, now, I'm not sure if it's a man or woman who's in charge of Spark Sport. Are they actually managing to t- attract any viewers? This is uh, a bit of a curly one. Mike, why was the women's rugby such a success free to wear on television? Interesting question, that, because um, I was stunned. I think I was stunned or just maybe moderately surprised. Anyway, so they, they had a number of well over a million, 1.2, 1.3 million watching. That's, that's as big as it gets on any given year. If you look back on television numbers in the year... If there's an election year, you'll get a bit over a million. You used to, in the olden days, get an all-black test up around that. If you add all the numbers together, it depends how you add the numbers, how many people were watching it in one moment versus how many people collectively watched it together. Anyway, the point being, TV3, it was their biggest day ever, for obvious reasons, but they gave the number of Spark Sport at 100,000. Now, my question around Spark Sport is, and I was thinking about this ironically, not with the rugby, but when I was watching the F1 over the weekend, and I'm thinking, how much longer... Is Spark Sport making any money, for a start? How many people have Spark Sport got paying them money? And is it many? And then suddenly they gave us this number of 100,000. Now, that would be the big, I'm guessing, but that would be the biggest sporting event that Spark Sport's ever held, apart from maybe the men's rugby, as in the World Cup. But if you only get 100,000 people watching something that somebody on free-to-air can get well in excess of a million, you've got to wonder how good you you know, are you making any money out of that? How many people are watching F1, for example? Uh, they had the EPL, but they've lost that. So therefore, you've got the twofold problem. One, is enough money coming in to justify your existence? And two, does the new corporate structure at Spark actually love sport the way the original corporate structure at Spark liked it when they set it up? Just struck me as a very, very small number on the biggest event going. Speaking of the F1, 
I've decided Interlagos is the best track in the world. And they're racing there at the moment in Brazil. And it was a fantastic sprint race yesterday in Brazil. And I, they're going to do more sprint races. And if you don't follow F1, they have a sprint race occasionally the day before the Grand Prix itself. And the sprint race yesterday was absolutely scintillating. And what made it even better was it looks like Mercedes are back. And as we speak, George Russell is leading the Grand Prix itself. What, so, what, what is a sprint race? Sprint 18, 19, 20 laps. Just oh, a, so it's just a shorter and, race. Instead, instead of, um, hence the word sprint race, instead of a... <clears throat> Excuse me, a qualifying session, you do a sprint race, and how you finish in the sprint race sorts out your grid for the Grand Prix, which is going as we speak. See, this is why I don't have Spark Sport, because... Is that what it is? You, you just tell me everything I need to know. I've saved you the I, money. Yeah, and give me, time. Give, I don't need me, to give watch me, it. Give me, give me seven ninety nine then. I'll take six. I'll take seven ninety nine. Worth for your, it. For your annual sub. Yes, uh, it's true. Everything I know about Formula One, I learnt from Mike Hosking. <laughs> he is, he is my, my Formula One... Uh, sports uh, subscription service. Um, I've heard a few things from him about uh, race-based politics as well. I'm not sure if I necessarily subscribe to all the points of view, though. I try and avoid mentioning the Maori Party, given they, to my eye, are a destructive force. Uh, they're upset at both Labour and National, though, at the moment, and this is why I raise this particular subject. The fact they're upset with both is a very clear sign as to just how radical they are. Their upset is based around the fact that they lost the vote on the electoral right-to-switch rolls freely amendment bill. It's the bill that would have allowed you to swap onto or off the Maori roll pretty much any time you like. The vote was 107 to 12. The 12 was the Maori party and fellow radicals, the Greens. And that is yet another reminder of why the Greens have never fully achieved their potential. They're not green. They're social engineering control freaks. Uh, the bill said Rawari Waititi, would fix New Zealand's racist electoral system. And he's right. Our electoral system is racist, but not the way he argues. Our system is racist because it has special rules based on race. That's racist. Under MMP, we have never had a greater representation. Race, culture, gender, MMP is your answer if representative or representation of a broad nature is desired. Thus, we no longer need Maori seats, if in fact we ever needed them at all. Waititi talks of his bill being part of honouring a te tiriti o Waitangi, and in that is one of our great conundrums, is it not just what is honouring or not honouring the treaty? What does the treaty mean, and what was meant those hundred plus years ago? What it isn't is separatism, which is what the radicals are chasing. What it isn't is one rule for some and another for Maori, and yet that is how they interpret it. And they interpret it that way because under this government they have seen the weak link, they have seen the Maori caucus and the radicals in it, they have seen the grip they have on the wider party and they're going for broke. As it turns out, this was a bridge too far, but, 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 be alert, Labour have their own policy for Maori electoral rules, so be aware they voted against the Maori party version, not because they don't like it, but because they want to drive the narrative, not some pipsqueak do it for them. As radical as the Maori party are, Labour... Aren't a lot different. I mean, hopefully everything always balances out in the, in the end. You know, if what we've seen in the United States over the last week is anything to go by, it, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of optimism there that perhaps not everything has to be radical and extreme. Maybe. Um, uh, how, uh, we do need some radical and extreme thinking around uh, linking the two bits of Auckland together, though. Uh, so uh, they've been discussing this over the weekend. You know, the old second harbour crossing. Is it going to be under the water, over the water? Is it going to happen at all? <laughs> so Michael Wood, 
He's the transport minister, also the immigration minister, but in this particular guy's the transport minister. He goes across to the North Shore of Auckland yesterday to announce this big, hey, let's see what you think, whether we want a flying fox or a tunnel or a bridge or whatever it is you want for a second harbour crossing, none of which is ever going to happen. Uh, and I'm reading over the weekend, it's a very good piece in the Herald, and you should read it. And, the, and this is the reality for young people in, in, in the country's biggest city. And I don't mean to bore you if you're outside of Auckland, but um, this is public transport as far as I can work out pretty much over any of the major centres. So Auckland students next year, this particular one they, they cite, is coming in from Pukekohe to central Auckland, uh, has to use public transport, and that commute next year will be five hours a day. Five hours a day. Because, of course, you've got the rail network which is being dug up and they're going to be replaced by buses that don't exist. So they won't be replaced by buses and they won't be driven by people because they're not here either. So no buses, no drivers and the railway lines that are being dug up and uh, these students who are coming in from Pukekohe to central Auckland each day, five hours. And, of course, Michael um, Michael Wooden is, um, and as Simon Bridges said a couple of moments ago, the North Shore, one of the biggest growth areas of the country. And so you want better, bigger, brighter public transport on the North Shore. So, so Michael Wood was asked how he got to the North Shore yesterday, and do you know what he took? He took a car. Why, why did he take a car? Today I uh, came across in my car. They've got a bit of a complex day. Bit of a complex day, Michael? See, this is the problem. This is why he's such a hypocrite. We've all got complex days. And that's the point about public transport, isn't it? If you need to go simply from A to B, no problem at all. You can probably use public transport as long as you're not coming to work at 3 o'clock in the morning. But if you're going from A to B and B to A, no problem at all. But if you're going from A to B to B to C, to C to D to E to A, to B to D, and it's university, and it's sport, and it's kids, and it's appointments, and it's family, you can't use public transport because what sort of day do we have, Michael? Today I uh, came across in my car. They've got a bit of a complex day. Yeah, a bit of a complex day. And that is the secret to why public transport doesn't work. If, if you can't stop your day from getting too complex on a Sunday, wow. Uh, I'm, I, yeah, I tell you what, trying to get to my house on public transport is pretty complex. Um, I am Glenn ZB. Uh, thanks for joining me, and I hope your day is not too complex tomorrow uh, to join me for another uh, rewrap then. See ya.